The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, November 14th, 2021, on the basis of Hebrews 9, verses 24 through 28. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. So how long do you think it will take? Once again, we find ourselves in a, a situation where a lot of the collective attention in our nation is being given to what is happening inside of a courtroom. This time, it involves the, the, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, a case that is being heard right here in our very own state of Wisconsin. If you've been following the case, you know that arguments wrapped up this past week, which means that this coming week, the 12 jurors who were selected for this case are going to go behind those proverbial closed doors and they are going to begin deliberating. How long do you think it will take? Sometimes that can be as much of a story as the verdict itself. You might remember when it comes to arguably America's most famous criminal case ever, the trial of O.J. Simpson, there were experts who thought that the jury would take up to two months deliberating that very controversial and complicated case, and yet that jury only deliberated for four hours. Sometimes people can reach a decision so quickly that other people might wonder whether they took enough time, the time required, to get it right. But of course, things can go in the opposite direction too, right? I mean, a jury can't just deliberate a defendant's innocence or their guilt endlessly. In fact, I found this out this past week that our Department of Defense has actually produced a guidebook that's entitled Behind Closed Doors. And it's all about providing jurors with some guidance and direction for carrying out their deliberation. I've never seen the book, never read a single word in it, but I would assume that, that the entire goal is based on the assumption that we want jurors, we want juries to eventually reach a decision. We want to hear a verdict read. We want those doors, those closed doors that jurors go behind to eventually open back up. So what if they never do? We're in the middle of this worship series entitled Behind the Curtain. Worship series is all about these splendid realities that are ours in Christ even now, but right now are behind a curtain. In other words, they are outside of our view. Last week, we talked about how the life that God intends for us, life as it was meant to be, is behind a curtain. And yet, because we desire that life so much, in fact, God created us to desire that life, it is tempting for us to try and pull that life into view in this life. Well, today we're talking about something that's even more important to us, something even more desirable, in fact, something even more necessary for us as human beings, and that something is justice. Not justice necessarily for others, but justice for us. Our verdict, our guilt or our innocence before God, who is really the only judge that matters. That, that justice, that verdict is also behind a curtain. And because that justice, that verdict is so very important to us. In fact, out of all the things that we crave as human beings, 
Perhaps it is the case that exoneration and acquittal and vindication and innocence are right there at the very top of the list. Because we desire those things so much, we'll again see how tempting it is for us to want to pull those things from behind that curtain and into our view. And yet, as we look at these verses from Hebrews chapter 9 this morning, we're going to see that that would be a tragic mistake. Yes, when it comes to human courts and human trials. We need those doors to open back up. We need jurors to reach a decision. We need to hear a verdict read aloud. But when it comes to our verdict before God, today we're going to see that the best place for our innocence to be is behind closed doors. Now, it's a very difficult thing for us to leave it there. In fact, so difficult that it might even cause people to leave the Christian faith behind for something else. That's exactly what was going on among the Jewish Christians that the book of Hebrews is addressed to. So these are people who grew up in the Jewish faith. They eventually heard about Jesus and converted to Christianity, but then they were thinking about going back. Why? Well, there were a variety of reasons, but one of them is this, that in the Jewish faith, justice is always very visible. What brings about our innocence before God is always on display. In the Old Testament, that was the case with the sacrifices that were offered. High priests represented God before the people, and some of the sacrifices that they offered were offered daily. Every morning, every evening, a sacrifice was made. Some of those sacrifices were offered more sporadically when there was a specific sin that people committed, a specific sacrifice was prescribed. And then there were some sacrifices that were offered annually, just once a year, like the sacrifices that were offered on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur in Hebrew. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest had a very carefully prescribed set of steps that he had to follow. So first of all, he would appear before the people, outside the temple, in front of the altar that was outside the temple, and he would offer two sacrifices. One a bull for his own sins, and the second, a goat for the sins of the people. Then after appearing before the people, he would go inside the temple and he would appear before God. In fact, he would take some of the blood from each of those sacrifices. He would walk into the temple. He would go behind a curtain, a very literal curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, and he would sprinkle that blood from those sacrifices on the Ark of the Covenant. After appearing before God, he would then go back out and appear once again before the people. This time there was a, a second goat involved. The high priest would take both of his hands, place it on the head of the goat, and he would confess all of the sins that the people had committed during that past year. And then that goat, the scapegoat, was sent out into the wilderness as a symbol that the people's sins were being taken away. In all of these ways, in that Jewish religion, that Jewish system of religion that God had given to his people, justice was very visible. The people's innocence before God was always on display. And that's what made it so appealing. Unfortunately, that was also its fatal flaw. You see, there was a reason why those sacrifices, whether they were daily or sporadically or annually, there was a reason that those sacrifices needed to keep being offered again and again 
and again. It's because none of those sacrifices in and of themselves were doing anything to solve the problem of the people's guilt before God. The very thing that made this system of religion so very attractive was also the thing that proved that it was ineffective. Those sacrifices never stopped because those sacrifices never worked. Now, sitting here today might sound a little bit odd to people like us to think the idea that slitting the throat of a goat or a bull and taking its blood and sprinkling it on some gold-plated chest could possibly do anything to make us innocent before God. Without a doubt, the ways in which people try to atone for their sins changes from place to place and from religion to religion. And yet, make no mistake, this desire for our innocence before God to be a very visible, a very public thing is a universal human condition. In fact, it's really the only explanation for why so much attention is being given to this trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. I mean, think about it. Here's what happened. A, a young man shot three people. Two of them died. Very sad, very tragic. But without at all trying to sound calloused about it, that kind of thing happens all the time. So why so much attention to this one particular case? Well, if you know the circumstances of the case, you can probably guess that it's because this case happens to touch on a lot of the hot-button issues that really get people riled up in our country right now. Right? All in this one case, you've got issues like gun ownership and Second Amendment rights. You've got things like the proper role and the effectiveness of law enforcement in our communities. And then you've got the condition of race relations in our country. In fact, if you were to add things like immigration policy and climate change and vaccine mandates, you'd have it all covered, right? Just about every single thing that really gets people worked up. Now, I suppose we could say that people get worked up about issues like that because of the real impact that it has on the lives of real people. And yet I think we are kidding ourselves if we don't also realize that the reason those issues cause people to get so very passionate is because our position on those issues, whether it's one side or the other, is very often the source of our innocence. It's the way that we demonstrate our virtue, which is why it's not just enough in, in a lot of cases for us to hold a certain position on any of those issues. Instead, we need to make that position as public and as visible as we possibly can. The appeal of taking justice, taking our innocence before God and making it very public and, and very visible, that appeal will never go away. But the ineffectiveness of doing that will never go away either. Just as those sacrifices in the Old Testament needed to keep being offered again and again and again because they didn't actually do anything. So also, if it is up to us to prove our own innocence and prove our own virtue, that task will never come to an end. Because today's social crusade will soon be tomorrow's old news. And today's favorite social cause will soon be tomorrow's forgotten charity. We will have to keep doing these things over and over and over again because it will never be enough. In our minds or the minds of others, it will never, ever work. But what other option do we have, really? 
I mean, what am I supposed to do? Am I just supposed to walk around each and every day without everyone knowing whether I'm one of the good guys or one of the bad guys? Well, unfortunately, that's the reality that we're, we're stuck with, whether we like it or not. In fact, even in the court of, a pu of public opinion, even in the opinion of others, no matter how much we tr might try to display our own virtue, it is always going to be a hung jury. There are always going to be some people who think we're great and other people who think that we are terrible. And that is certainly the case when it comes to, again, the one courtroom that really matters, our judgment before God. It is not as though when someone's life is about to come to an end, God just hits a big pause button on all of life on planet Earth and says, hang on, everybody. Jim's time is about to be up. I want to let everybody know whether he's guilty or he's innocent. No, as the writer to the Hebrews says, people are destined to die once and then after that to face judgment. Judgment before God happens after death, not before which means that it is invisible, not visible. Whether you are Mother Teresa or Osama bin Laden, there is no one about whom we can be 100% certain about the verdict that they received before God. It happens after they die, out of our sight. Now that might cause us to want to stand up and raise our hand and say, Your Honor, I object. And yet the very thing that makes God's judgment in that way seem so objectionable to us is also the source of our greatest comfort and our greatest confidence. In fact, that's the entire point that the writer to the Hebrews wants to make in these verses. He uses those steps that would have been very familiar to people about the Day of Atonement to make a comparison to the work that Jesus, our great high priest, did for us. Just as the high priest on the Day of Atonement would start by standing before the people, appearing before them, so also Jesus appeared among us to offer a sacrifice for us. Then, just as the high priest went into the temple, into that most holy place, with the blood from the sacrifice to appear before God, so also now Jesus has taken the blood from the sacrifice he offered and he has appeared before God. And yet, unlike on the great day of atonement where that high priest came back out to once again appear before the people, we have not seen Jesus come back out. And there's a reason for that. You see, in spite of the many similarities between the great day of atonement and what Jesus did for us, there are also some very important differences, differences that the writer clearly points out. For starters, when Jesus came to offer a sacrifice, it was not some animal, it was not a, a, a bull or a goat. Jesus, of course, offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross. And then after making that sacrifice, Jesus did not walk past a physical curtain into some physical room to stand before God, which was only just a, a copy of the real thing, as the writer points out. No, instead he crossed that curtain that separates heaven from earth, that separates time from eternity, and he stood, he stands before the throne of God. And then finally, and most importantly, as the writer points out, when Jesus came to offer a sacrifice for sins, this is not something that he needed to do over and over again. This is something he did once and he did for all. Why? Because his sacrifice actually worked. It actually took care of our sin. And where's the proof? Where's the evidence for that? It's found in the fact that after Jesus 
appeared before God with blood from the sacrifice he offered, he has not since come back out. When people discuss courts and trials and legal proceedings, you'll maybe sometimes hear the phrase, the dog that didn't bark. That phrase actually comes from a story about Sherlock Holmes. And the phrase indicates that sometimes it's actually the absence of a certain set of facts, a certain set of evidence that proves what's actually true. So for example, if, if someone claimed to law enforcement or a detective that they had just gotten home after being out driving around running some errands, but it was a rainy day outside and their car was sitting in the garage, absolutely bone dry without a single drop on it, the absence of water on their car would be the dog that didn't bark. It would be proof that they were lying. Well, in the very same way, where is our proof? Where is our evidence that our innocence before God has been established? How do we know that we can walk around in life without feeling like we have something to prove, without feeling like we've got a chip on our shoulder? How can we go through life without feeling burdened by guilt or in any way uncertain about the eternity that is in store for us? The answers will not be found in any of the visual or vocal displays of virtue that we might dream up. Instead, the answer is found in the dog that didn't bark. That once Jesus made that sacrifice on the cross and appeared before God with blood from that sacrifice, he has not yet come back out. That is where our innocence is found, behind that curtain behind those closed doors and there's no other place we would want it to be and that leaves us as we sit here today exactly where we saw it leave us last week and where we're going to see next week that it, it leaves us too it leaves us doing the very last thing that a world with high-speed internet and instant Wi-Fi and fast food and microwave ovens condition us to want. It leaves us waiting. Waiting very, very patiently. You see, just as that high priest on the Day of Atonement eventually did come back out and appear before the people, one day Jesus will leave his throne in heaven and once again appear before people on earth. But not because it will indicate that innocence has been lost. Not because more sacrifices for sins need to be offered. No, as the writer points out that will be the day when he will have our salvation in his hands. That will be the day when he loosens our handcuffs and he opens up those prison doors and he sets free all those who have been waiting for him, all those who have entrusted their innocence to him. Which is one thing that makes it very, very different from the people who are waiting anxiously to hear the verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Even before the jury deliberation begins and even before a verdict comes back, there's one thing that we can say with absolute certainty. When that verdict finally comes, there will be some people who will be disappointed. Some people who are not happy, some people who think that justice was not done. And yet when it comes to the judgment that we are waiting for from God, even as we wait, we already know what the verdict is going to be. There's absolutely no possible way that we will be let down. Yes, it is difficult 
for us to wait, for us to leave that innocence with God. So difficult, in fact, that people have left the Christian faith over it. But friends, rest assured, all those who wait for Jesus appearing will not be disappointed. Amen.